Welcome to After Hours with Dr. Sigaloff, where he can share ideas and thoughts with you. He gets to the heart of the issue so that you can find the truth. The views and opinions expressed are his and do not represent the U.S. Army, DOD, nor the U.S. government. Dr. Sigaloff was either off duty or on approved leave, and Dr. Sigaloff was not in uniform at the time of recording. Now, to Dr. Sigaloff. Thank you for joining me for episode three. We have increased our listenership. We now have listeners in Maine, Texas, Georgia, California, Washington State, Kansas, Arizona, Oklahoma, North Carolina, New York, Massachusetts, Florida, Alaska, Slovenia, United Kingdom, Germany, and the Bahamas. Thank you for sharing this with your friends. Please continue to share it. We are the remnant that is here that is refusing to give in to medical tyranny. Please continue to listen. Please share this with everyone that you can. Please, I would like everyone to become a supporter. Please feel free to reach out to me at after hours at 1791.com. That's after hours at 1791. Before we get this episode started today, I want to hear a brief word from one of our supporters. Ben, give us a quick word. Hello, this is Ben. Here at After Hours, we like to draw strength from those that have gone before us and lived through hard times. I'd like to open with a Thomas Paine quote from the American Crisis, number one, December 19th, 1776. Tyranny like hell, is not easily conquered. Yet we have this consolation with us, that the harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. And now, back to After Hours. Ben, out. Thank you for those words of encouragement, Ben. Those words are as important today as the first day they were spoken. And we will keep you in our hearts and prayers. New York Governor Holchel shortens quarantine time for the critical workforce, stating we need you again. Okay, so you can see the the obvious non-scientific approach this is. Uh, even if these people were vaccinated, they can't shorten their their quarantine time. That's unacceptable. A few years ago, I was sick with influenza. I was at home. I was having fevers. My boss called me. This I was three days into influenza, and they wanted me to come back to work. I had mentioned that you know no one wants to get influenza when they go to the doctor. And my boss had said, well, you know, that's a risk that people take when they go to the doctor's office. And yes, it is a risk to be potentially become ill from another patient. However, it is completely unacceptable for the doctor to get you ill. Fox News article talks about France and their COVID cases surge up to 100,000. They mention here that more than 1 in 100 people have tested positive in the past week. So let's stop and think about this for a second. Is this more people getting infected because everything we're doing isn't working? Like the vaccines, like the masks, are they preventing illnesses or, you know, what's going on? Why is this happening again? These are questions that you should be asking yourself. A Steve Kirsch article estimates one in 95 boys diagnosed with myocarditis in a California private school. That's exceptionally high. So I've been in practice now for almost 10 years. I've never seen a case of myocarditis in a child. I've seen one case in one patient of myocarditis that was recently infected with HIV. So this was a post-infective myocarditis. The man was 38 years old. His ejection fraction, which is typically at 65%, went all the way down to 10%. He lived the rest of his life that way. I don't know how much longer he lived. Typically, life expectancy is significantly shortened. But he was basically a cardiac cripple. So instead of having to use crutches, his heart was his crutch. The interesting thing about 
myocarditis is when you inflame the heart and you get it scarred, it never repairs. So there's no mild myocarditis. Have you seen these articles floating around? Local news clips of teenagers falling down face first on the ground, falling down dead. That's what happens when you have myocarditis and you stress the heart. You drop dead. You have cardiac arrest. Here's an article from Circulation. That's the American Heart Association. It says, clinically suspected myocarditis temporarily related to COVID-19 vaccinations in adolescents and young adults. The conclusion of this article says that most cases of suspected COVID-19 vaccine myocarditis occurred in persons less than 21 years of age, having a mild clinical course with rapid resolution of symptoms. Abnormal findings on cardiac MRI were frequent. Future studies should evaluate risk factors, mechanisms, and long-term outcomes. So what they're saying here is they call it mild, but if it's bad enough to be diagnosed, then it's not mild. If it's bad enough to see changes on MRI, so a cardiac MRI, so they, they image the heart, and if they can see changes on it, then it's not mild. And they even say here that future studies should evaluate risk factors, the mechanism, and long-term outcomes, meaning they don't know what the long-term outcome is. Does this reduce your life significantly? Do you have five years? Do you have 10 years? Do you have 20, 30 years? A lot of these people, for them to reduce their life to only 30 more years would be a significant reduction. But we don't even know that. We don't know if these children that have suffered this damage, if they're going to be around next week. We don't know. And that's the biggest thing. And anybody who tells you that it's safe and effective, they're wrong. They don't know what they're talking about. Efficacy versus effectiveness. We keep hearing that these are safe and effective, but really what they should be saying is that these are safe and efficacious. Let's kind of go through the differences in these. Remember, efficacy is what we want, and effectiveness is what they're trying to sell us. Efficacy refers to the degree in which an action produced a clinically measurable effect under ideal conditions, whereas effectiveness refers to the degree at which the action achieves the intended health result under normal circumstances. Efficacy describes how medications are used to control in an ideal condition. Effectiveness describes how medications are used in average clinical conditions. Efficacy refers to the ability to gain a clinically measurable effect. Effectiveness does not refer to a clinically measurable effect. Efficacy measures how well a drug can produce the desired effect. And effectiveness refers to how easily the drug is to use and the possible side effects of that drug. So do you see the difference there? From a clinical perspective, as the patient, I mean, it's nice if it's easy to use and if there's not many possible side effects. But what's more important, does it get the job done? Is there the desired result? And with these, these alleged vaccines for COVID, the desired result is to prevent infection. But that doesn't seem to be happening. Now, they're easy to use, at least for the practitioner, because you just inject the patient with it. But they, some of them have quite significant side effects. We've seen a lot of side effects. Efficacy does not refer to a clinically measurable effect, meaning the intent of effectiveness doesn't need to be clinically measured, whereas efficacy refers to the ability to gain a clinically measurable effect. So when people say that this is safe and effective think of them saying it's safe which i don't know if that's accurate but they also say that it's effective meaning it's easy to use well yeah it's easy for them they just stick a needle in you they're not referring to drug side effects or the possible drug side effects
what they should be talking about is efficacy. We want to know, does this work? Does this give the results that we're looking for? There was recently a leaked email. This email is through the Texas National Guard, and it comes from a lieutenant colonel is the rank, and he is a PA. I'm going to leave his name out of here. But in this email, it says, just as a reminder, it is our job to convince soldiers to receive the vaccine. If you are personally not able to fulfill this role, please private message me. That is one little excerpt from this leaked email. I have from fairly good references that this is legitimate, that this actually was sent out to all of the clinicians in the Texas National Guard. So the problem with this is this goes against the Nuremberg Code. This is undue pressure. This is coercion. I know a man who was coerced, and he has suffered significant injury from this. So I have a friend that works at an emergency room. He's an emergency room doctor. I'm not going to give any more details than that. So most of the hospital staff where he works, most of the ER staff, most of his co-workers, most of the nursing staff have all been vaccinated. And they're doing this policy now where they test asymptomatic patients or asymptomatic staff prior to starting the shift. So what does that mean? Well, that means that they have these surprises where, let's say, five out of, you know, maybe 10 or five out of 20 staff members have a positive COVID test prior to start of shift. So now how are you going to run your hospital? How are you going to run your emergency room? How are you going to help patients that have life-threatening conditions? It's simple. You just have them stay. You have nurses that test positive. You have them stay and continue working until after the shift and then start their quarantine after the shift. My wife is a nurse. She has a nursing friend that works in a large hospital in a very large city. I'm not going to give any more specifics than that. But they're working around very sick children, the sickest of the sick children. A nurse tested positive for COVID. An asymptomatic nurse tested positive. A vaccinated asymptomatic nurse tested positive and was told to stay until the shift was over. And then they would be retested on Monday when they came back to work. What if that was your child who was terribly ill, the ones who are actually at risk, and the nursing staff was told to stay and keep working until your shift is over, exposing every child that they see? And these aren't the children who are at low risk. These are the children that are at risk of dying of COVID. Well, that's what's actually happening across this country. So Fox News on December 29th has an article, and the headline is, COVID-19 cases, New York City sees fourfold increase in children hospitalized. Well, this is interesting fourfold increase. I thought this was supposed to be getting better. What's interesting about the fourfold increase, when we didn't have the vaccine, the numbers of sick children from COVID were four times smaller. That's a significant amount of increase in patients that have to be hospitalized that are children that previously did very, very well. And so you have to stop and think, you know, what's causing children to get more sick? Is it a more dangerous strain? Is it causing children to get infected when they previously didn't know they were infected or weren't able to get infected very easily? Or, and these are questions that we may never know because no other doctor in the mainstream is asking these questions. Are all of these children, this fourfold increase, are they all, do they all receive the mRNA genetic therapy vaccine, okay? And if they did receive this genetic therapy vaccine, did it put them at higher risk of having an infection when previously they would not have? 
It's saying here in this article that as of December 24th, 27.4% of 5 through 11-year-olds had received at least one dose, and 16.6 were fully what they call vaccinated. It goes on to say that 71.9% of 12 through 17-year-olds have received at least one dose, and 64.2% of 12 to 17-year-olds are, quote, fully vaccinated. Okay, so before we had these these genetic therapy vaccine treatments, the hospitalization rate was four times lower. And every time we do more, do the things that we think will help, it makes it worse. Look at the graphs of the states that, that have very little mask mandates, have very little restriction of movements. Their cases are going down. Look at all the states that have high vaccine rates, high masking rates, and lots of lockdowns. Their rates are going up. It's almost as if the wise are confused by the foolish. That would be the earthly, allegedly wise, confused by the allegedly earthly foolish. Military.com on December 28th has an article about Pentagon advises booster shots as COVID surge over holidays. Okay, so they're saying that the the average daily case is 105% over the increase over the past two weeks, according to a detail uh, tracking by the New York Times. This also goes on to say that the Pentagon is not releasing any information about uh, the statistics on who's getting the booster shot. And it also states, and I want to make this very clear, I am not releasing this information. This information is given by military.com, a combat ship with sideline, because 25% of the crew, about two dozen sailors, were infected. And it goes on to say that the entire crew is fully vaccinated. So 25%, a quarter of all the sailors in this ship, were infected and they were all vaccinated. But remember, we were told that these are safe and effective. We remember, have to remember what the definition of effective is and how it is not efficacious. The DOD personnel are encouraged to consider using the FDA-approved COVID-19 home testing kits. These home testing kits, there are some articles I've read that say that they have dangerous materials in them. And yeah, if they're used properly, they're probably safe. But we should not be allowing dangerous chemicals that could potentially kill someone if they do the test incorrectly allowed in the layperson's hands. The reagent could have deadly and very dangerous chemicals in it. But typically those very dangerous chemicals are in the hands of trained professionals, but now we're going to be sending them to everyone's home where there's children where people are being rushed and they have to get out, get to work quickly and they're going to shove the swab up their, um, you know, four-year-old's nose and then they're going to put the reagent on it and then, oh, they, they put the reagent on it and then suck it back up their nose. And now someone could be fatally injured by these compounds that are in this reagent. So this is one of our favorite doctors that we've heard a lot from recently. You'll probably recognize him by his voice, but this is Anthony Fauci. Fourth shot. It will be very important for us to determine the durability of protection, particularly against severe disease, for the third shot booster of an mRNA and the second shot of a J&J. Right now, we don't have that information. It is conceivable that in the future we might need an additional shot, but right now we are hoping that we will get a greater degree of durability of protection from that booster shot. So we're going to take one step at a time get the data from the third boost, and then make decisions based on the scientific. Okay, so 
Let me be abundantly clear. He's saying an additional shot, additional to the booster. So for everyone counting, that's we're up to four now. We're up to four shots because it may not have worked well enough. Okay. So and this this is from a Blaze Media article, and it says Fauci is. Uh, it is conceivable that another COVID-19 vaccine shot could be needed on top of the booster. This came out on December 29th. And so, yeah, we're talking about the fourth one. So a while back, I was uh, talking with some, some of my uh, doctor friends at a hospital that I was at previously. And they, they were internal medicine docs. And one of them, we were talking about calling this gene therapy and he said well it's not really gene therapy because it's not at the frequency that you would need to to be able to keep a protein in the body at a constant level right because let me just review again just so everyone knows gene therapy does not mean changing your genetic makeup gene therapy merely means that we're changing the function of a living cell for a therapeutic outcome and we're using a gene to do that the gene in this case would be the gene that encodes for the spike protein we're injecting that into you. It goes into your cell. It, it likely does not go into your nucleus, but we don't know. No one knows. But just for sake of argument, we'll assume that the gene that we're injecting, the mRNA, and remember, mRNA may mean messenger RNA, but it also may mean mod, M-O-D, modified mRNA, which is, I've seen that in some of the package inserts, which is different. You should, you should look that up. And it's it's a type of RNA that is not naturally occurring okay and so they inject that into you it goes into your uh into your cell and it starts making this s spike protein okay and it does not need to go into your nucleus to start making your s spike protein what this other doc was saying he's an internal medicine doc and he was saying yeah really to have gene therapy you really need to have a shot maybe maybe four times a year you know every maybe three or four months to keep a constant level of this protein in your body okay so we're up to three shots already you know, two are mandatory, right? So if you're in the in the military, you have to take two, even though not FDA approved. It's even though it's FDA authorized, which means that it would be against 10 USC 1107 if they required you to get this. Now they're saying, well, the the Pentagon saying, well, you know, there's a booster. We strongly encourage it, but it's not mandatory. And I'm going to throw in the yet in there because it's not mandatory yet, but it will be. So that's that's three shots that are going to be required. And now we have Anthony Fauci talking about a fourth booster. And I want to make it abundantly clear because I've noticed that this has come up in some conversations I've had with close family. That, well, how's the booster different? The booster, you know, maybe maybe it's a different compound. It's not. It's the exact same thing that they injected to you the first time, the second time, the third time. It's just another dose of the same medication that it doesn't seem to be effective against Omicron. If it didn't work the first time, then why would you use it again? Okay? And so, like, like a good example would be is uh, this year, the strain that they got for influenza isn't working so well. But yet, many employers are still requiring people to get their flu vaccine, even though it doesn't work, because they didn't get the right strains. And so, it makes you wonder, like, well, why would I do something if it's not going to help? Well, because you got to do what you're told. That's why. They want you to shut up and color. They want you to sit down and do what you're told, to kneel when you're told to kneel. Not stand, not think, not use your brain. But this audience isn't doing that. That's why you're listening. That's why you're a listener here. I've had some other questions and thoughts about, you know, Johnson Johnson. It's it's only a single shot, and it's not mRNA. So, 
So if I had to get one, I'd get that one because it's not mRNA because I've heard so many bad things about mRNA. Let me make it abundantly clear. For me, personally, I think D- that the Johnson & Johnson, it being DNA, is more terrifying. And let me explain why. So we know in the medical community that certain viruses that can infect us as humans, they're DNA viruses. Epstein-Barr, that causes mono. Chickenpox, it also causes shingles later in life. And herpes, those are all DNA viruses. And what's interesting about these DNA viruses is they, you get infected by them, and they go into your, they inject themselves into your DNA, and you carry them with you for the rest of your life. Their DNA stays in your DNA. That's why after you've had chickenpox, you're susceptible, you're able to have the outbreak again, and it's called shingles. I had shingles when I was in med school. Uh, that's why people who have, let's say, cold sores are in their mouth, or they have genital herpes, they can get it again whenever they get stressed because their immune system gets knocked down, the virus is able to come out, because the virus is already there. It's in their DNA. It just has to be expressed. Same with Epstein-Barr virus, which causes mono. It goes into your DNA and it stays with you forever. Okay, so we know that DNA viruses inject themselves into your DNA and stay with you forever. Okay, now let's go back to J&J. J&J uses a, a virus, a denovirus, to put in a piece of genetic information that encodes for the S-spike protein. Except instead of being mRNA, this is DNA. So this DNA has to go into your nucleus for it to be effective, for it to cause you to make spike protein. Now, I think this is a question that needs to be answered before anybody should be should feel comfortable taking this. Does this DNA that encodes for the spike protein does it stay in my, does it go into my DNA and will it stay there forever? Like the DNA that's in Epstein-Barr, like the DNA that's in herpes, like the DNA that's in varicella zoster. I don't know. That's a question I think needs to be answered before we should be giving this to anyone. Especially since we've been giving it to just about everyone. What are the long-term implications? Nobody knows. And that's the biggest thing is I'm not saying I know. I'm not saying this is dangerous. I'm saying nobody knows. And remember, if anybody tells you that it's safe, they're too arrogant and too ignorant to know that it could be potentially very dangerous. So why, why put this in your body when your likelihood of having a good outcome can be great? Very low mortality rate with COVID-19, especially if you do the things to make yourself more healthy, to make yourself metabolically healthy. So how do you make yourself metabolically healthy? Well, you need to eat the right foods. Okay, well, my doc, you know, he said to eat more vegetables and eat more of this, eat more of that. We'll get into that more. Vegetables will not make you metabolically healthy. It also involves starting treatment early. We need treatments early. And if a treatment is minimally harmful and it could be helpful, wouldn't you want to have that treatment? If it's unlikely to cause any bad outcomes, but it's likely to, but you know, at worst, it's not going to cause many problems, but at best, it may help you significantly. Wouldn't you want that opportunity to keep yourself from being hospitalized and put on a vent? I would too. In fact, when I was ill, I took ivermectin. I lost my taste for about 24 hours and that was it. 
masks are not appropriate for this pandemic. It was, it's not appropriate for Omicron. It was not appropriate for Delta, Alpha, or any of the previous variants either because we're dealing with something that's airborne. So that was straight from a CNN clip. And this is what the interesting thing is. The cloth mask doesn't work. If cloth mask work, probably wouldn't have had influenza be as bad as it was back in uh, 1918. You know, we'd be able to stop many other bad viruses from happening. You know, every year we would have put on cloth masks if they would have worked every flu season, but we've never done that before. And so that clip from CNN, they're actually starting to tell the truth now, which is interesting because there's more interesting things that are starting to come out now. And it's almost, it almost feels as if we're getting gaslit. We're being told, oh, well, it almost seems as if what we were saying all along, things like, oh, well, you were admitted in the hospital and you died with COVID rather than died from COVID, that needs to be for further elucidated so that the numbers of COVID aren't higher than they should be. Here's Anthony Fauci just about four months ago. My slides, the Delta variant is much more highly transmissible than was Alpha. So given that, you'll see more children likely get infected. And since you have a certain percentage of children, even though the percentage is small, certain percentage of children will require hospitalization. So quantitatively, you will see more children in the hospital. Regarding the severity of illness, there was a um, couple of studies, mostly international, which suggested that Delta was more severe in adults namely causing more relative percentage of hospitalization and more severe disease. With regard to children, this could possibly be the case, but we are not seeing this in a definitive way. The only thing we know for sure is that more infections mean more children will be in the hospital. Now let's compare and contrast that to Anthony Fauci just about a day ago or less. And listen to his answer. He was just asked about Omicron and the increased hospitalization of children, even though it doesn't seem to be hurting children as much as what we've been told. But but listen to Dr. Anthony Fauci's response. Well, that's a good question. And there are two things that contribute to that. First of all, quantitatively, you're having so many more people, including children, who are getting infected. And even though hospitalization among children is much, much lower on a percentage basis than hospitalizations for adults, particularly elderly individuals. However, when you have such a large volume of infections among children, even with a low level of rate of infection, you're going to still see a lot more children who get hospitalized. But the other important thing is that if you look at the children who are hospitalized, many of them are hospitalized with COVID as opposed to because of COVID. And what we mean by that, if a child goes in the hospital, they automatically get tested for COVID and they get counted as a COVID hospitalized individual. When in fact, they may go in for a broken leg or appendicitis or something like that. So it's overcounting the number of children who are quote hospitalized with COVID as opposed to because of COVID. It's interesting that overcounts the number of patients, and specifically here he's talking about children, hospitalized with COVID because they didn't differentiate between are they hospitalized because of COVID or are they hospitalized with COVID. Now, many people that I know and that I've been listening to have been saying that for almost two years now. 
that we have overcounted the number of COVID infections in this country and the death rate of COVID infections in this country because we're counting anyone that's in a hospital with a positive COVID test as a hospitalized with COVID. So back in last year, it was a, right around a year ago, I was looking at the, the CDC's average number of deaths. And I look back in 2016, I look back in 2017, there was about a 30 to 60,000 difference. And then from 17 to 18, there was about a 30 to 60,000 total deaths in the United States difference. And, and when you adjusted for population growth, the actual, even though the gross number of deaths went up because the population grew, the percent of death per population actually went down. And so when we compared 2020 to 2019 and to 2018, it maintained that same pattern of being about 30 to 60,000 per year, which in the previous years had been the same pattern and had slowly decreased the percentage of deaths per population. So there was less people dying per population, even though, even though the gross number of people dying was, you know, just the raw number was higher, the population grew. And so the percentage of people dying per total population actually went down every year. And that same pattern was true from 2018, 2019, and 2020. Now, they hadn't had the uh, population-adjusted number yet because they didn't have the census available to do that. But what's interesting is if December 2020, you expected to find, you know, like four or 500,000 more deaths due to COVID on top of all the other deaths that would have happened, the accidents, the injuries, the suicides, heart attacks, strokes, cancer, then it should have been the same number as the year before plus 500,000, and that was not the case. We overcounted the numbers then, or at least that's what it seems is that we overcounted the numbers. And it seems that we're being gaslit because now Anthony Fauci is saying, well, we were overcounting the numbers when people were saying that a year ago and they were wrong for saying that and they were inaccurate and they're spreading lies. But who's spreading the lies? And that's the thing is I'm not going to tell you what the truth is. I'm going to give you my perspective and I'm going to give you what I think, but I'm going to leave it up to you to do your own homework and your own research. And I want you to find the truth. So I want to change the subject for just a moment. I recently read an article saying that 206 Marines were kicked out of the Marine Corps because they did not have this alleged vaccine. I want to personally congratulate each one of them. They are the best that we have in this country. They're willing to put feeding their family on the line. They're willing to put their career on the line. In a small way, I'm doing it in my own way, and I'll get into that a little more in the future at some point. But these men and these women that are actually discharged from the Marine Corps have given everything for our country. Many of these, I'm sure, are combat veterans. And they're kicked out, they're kicked to the curb, and they have nothing. They had a career that they wanted to follow, and now they can't do it because they're out. Many of these are Marines that really don't have any other way of feeding their family. But yet this was so important to them. Their medical freedom was so important to them and to everyone else in this country that they decided it would be better to be kicked out than to, than to stay and bow when they felt it immoral to bow. And I want to congratulate them, and I want, you to, I want to encourage you. And, and if, if you're one of those 206 Marines, please, please email me. Email me at afterhours at 1791.com. That's afterhours at 1791.com. 1791 was the year that the Bill of Rights was ratified. That's an important date in history. And we should all remember that because the Bill of Rights is something that every American should be able to agree on as it is human rights that, that all people should be afforded. 
as we say goodbye today. Thank you for joining me again. Please feel free to reach out to me anytime. I am looking for more supporters to do the intros. Remember, never give in, never surrender, never give in. In nothing great or small, large or petty, never give in, except to the convictions of honor and good sense. What I want you to remember, what I want you to think of is whatever is important to you, that's what they're going to come after. You know, I've heard this said before by some warriors that when they go into battle, they expect that they will not come out alive. That way they can focus on the moment rather than get killed trying to stay alive. In the same way, you need to think about whatever is important to you. For me, it's my license. Whatever is important to you. Be ready to lose it. Be ready to give it up. Talk to your family about this. Is this something you can give up? And then when you have nothing to lose, they can't win. They have nothing they can take because you've already lost it in your mind. You already went into the process knowing that was what was going to happen. Now make them fight like hell to take it from you. Don't give in, don't roll over. But let's remember that tyranny is as hard as hell to, to beat. But in doing so, we will see the sweetest victory we've ever seen in our lifetime. Go make courage more contagious than fear.